Hey, everybody, this is Spencer Garrett. You may remember me as Simon Tarsus from the episode The Drumhead from The Next Generation or Crewman Weiss from Flesh and Blood on Voyager. Uh, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek-inspired podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today's guest is probably the busiest working actor we have spoken to on this series so far, and I challenge any future guests to top this guy. Spencer Garrett is a third-generation actor who Trek fans may recall as crewman Simon Tarsus from the Season 4 Next Generation episode The Drumhead, and as a Starfleet hologram Weiss from the Season 7 Voyager two-parter Flesh and Blood. Spencer has over 200 credits to his name, and that number continues to increase. You may have seen him in roles in films like Air Force One, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Bombshell, The Crow, Ghosts of Mississippi, George of the Jungle, Yes Man, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, and many more, as well as countless TV show appearances including Supernatural, Family Matters, News Radio, Medium, Burn Notice, Grey's Anatomy, Without a Trace, The X-Files, Law and Order, and a whole lot more. And quite frankly, it was hard to narrow down just a few things to discuss today beyond his time serving in Starfleet. But luckily for us, Spencer is a great storyteller who is adept at weaving so much of his work into his stories today. If there's one thing I love about talking with actors, it's hearing all their tales from working in the industry, and Spencer has a few you're going to hear today which will give you some good laughs and solid info on his craft. And just a quick side note, I want to apologize in advance for the slightly tinny audio in this episode. Not sure what happened when we recorded, but it got a little funky for this one and another interview I did as well. But at this point, that's all been sorted out and those problems shouldn't be coming up again. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. One word, no spaces. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering your support in any way, thank you for your help. Most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to it. This helps more people find us and hear the show. And I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people. But you're going to hear more about them a little bit later. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. Welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining me on the other side of the line is Spencer Garrett. Spencer, how's it going today? Uh, terrific, all things considered. Matthew, thank you. Good to be here. Now, I typically spend a few days researching as much as I can and ingesting as much as I can about the person who I'm interviewing, but when I saw your resume, I looked at it and I was like, well, it's a good thing we're on quarantine lockdown here because I'm not going to be moving for a few days. <laughs> so I, I got to ask yeah. you, just how many things have you been in since you started your career? Well... Uh, if you looked at my IMDb, I think it says something like 219 credits, um, which when I look back on my life, it's kind of hard to even fathom that just doing the math. Um, it's hard to imagine I've, I've done that many things, but I, I guess I have, um, yeah, something like 219 credits, 27 movies and God knows, uh, you know, a couple of television shows and uh yeah it's been uh, it's been a heck of a ride it's been a lot of fun i i like to say that next gen was sort of my my first real my first real 
job as a, as an actor in terms of like a meaty role, uh, in terms of a, a, a substantial meaty role. And it just so happened to be, you know, on, on that iconic episode. So, uh, I really lucked out. Yeah, definitely. We're going to be talking about that iconic episode in a bit, but, uh, first I'd like to ask you the same question I ask all of our guests when they first join us for the chat. And that's what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Well, my earliest memory of Star Trek was growing up as a little kid. My godfather was an actor named Liam Sullivan, and he probably most famously appeared on uh, the episode of the original series uh, called Plato's Stepchildren. And I think his character was called Zeus. I'm not sure. He was white-haired, elegant-looking uh, actor, and he was. In, it was the episode where he's moving Kirk and Michael Dunn's character around on a chessboard. Um, and that was my earliest member. I remember seeing him on reruns of that episode when I was a little kid and, uh, and being fascinated by the show. I have to admit, I wasn't really, I wasn't a Trek fan per se as a kid growing up. I kind of grew into it later and I really became a fan after I did the show on TNG. But when I got cast on the show, I reached out to Liam and I'm, and I said, you know, what can you tell me about your experience having worked on the show, you know, with with Shatner and, and all those folks? And uh, at just at, happened at the time there was a a a, a VHS copy of the uh, of the episode uh, that had just been released. So I was able to sort of watch it all over and over again. And in preparation for my role, uh, I went back into the you know into the archives and and watched tons of episodes of the original series just to wrap my head around, uh, you know, and, and get a sense of the vibe of, of what I was getting into. But that was my earliest memory, probably six or seven years old. Uh, and Liam from Plato's Stepchildren and, and another iconic episode. Real great episode. And just for the folks out there who I know are super hardcore, they're probably young at us right now. They're listening to this. Uh, he wasn't Zeus. He yeah. was Parman. So we'll get that right. We'll get that out of the way right now. He was Parman. Okay. But that is still a really okay. amazing connection to have. You basically grew up within the acting and, and this type of industry. Your mother is Kathleen Nolan. She's an actress and she was the first woman president of the Screen Actors Guild. Your father was yeah. the late Richard Heckenkamp, who was president and CEO of the talent agency Film Artist Associates. And now you told us about Liam as well, which I didn't know about. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about how and where you grew up and what it was like to essentially be raised within this industry? Well, I'm a third generation actor, Matthew. My grandparents uh, ran a showboat. Uh, and for the, for the younger folks out there who don't know what a showboat is, you'll have to Google it. It was literally a, a boat, like a paddle wheel boat, old, old fashioned boat that ran and up and down the Mississippi River. They were based in St. Louis. Uh, my grandfather, Stephen Ellsworth, and my grandmother, Clara Kennedy, and my mom, Kathleen Nolan, and my aunt, Nancy Carroll, uh, both actors, and they were raised on this showboat, and they would go up and down the Mississippi, and they would stop in little towns along Mississippi, like Joplin and St. Joe and Hannibal, and people from the town would get on the boat, and they would put on plays on the boat, in the theater, on, on the showboat. So that was, so that's sort of my, that's kind of my legacy. Um, and I grew up uh, in Los Angeles, kind of going back and forth. My folks split up when I was young, and I, I went back and forth between Los Angeles and New York. Uh, my mom uh, was uh, on, a, on a very, uh, very well-known series called The Real McCoys in the early 60s with Walter Brennan and Richard Crenna. And after that, and doing a couple of other series and 
several hundred episodes of television from Columbo to uh, Marcus Welby to you know, all, all the way, you know, the Rockford Files. I mean, she continued to work up until actually up until about a year and a half ago. Her last film was with uh, Burt Reynolds, uh, which uh, sadly was his last film called The Last Movie Star. But uh, I grew up with my mom in Los Angeles here in Santa Monica, went back and forth between here and New York. She'd go to Broadway and do a play on Broadway for a year. And uh, we'd lived in New York for a little bit when she was doing a play or she would be doing a, a, a musical out in Jones Beach on Long Island or Summerstock or regional theater. And then we would come back to Los Angeles. And, uh, and after she ran the Screen Actors Guild, she continued to work uh, in film and TV. My aunt, uh, my aunt Nancy Carroll, uh, was an actress up until the 70s. And my grandma and grandpa continued to work uh, up until probably the, probably the late 60s. My grandmother, Clara, became a talent agent in New York, and she was based in New York City. And um, my grandpa also lived back and forth between L.A. and New York. So we were like, uh, I, I, I always liken it to, you know, growing up in the circus. We were sort of, a, you know, a, a, a moving tent show. But uh, growing up, I was a single, you know, my mom was a single parent. I was an only child. And um, we, went, we went all over the place. So it was a it was a it was a lovely childhood. It was a fun way to grow up. I I grew up on movie sets and television sets, on you know on Bonanza and The Big Valley and uh, you know all those all those great television shows. Whenever my mom got a job, and I was uh, and I was off school, I would I would stay and hang out with her on the set and uh, you know wander around the back lots of Universal Studios or Warner Brothers and uh, the Western Town and and New York Street and you know that was. That's what it was like for me growing up. It was pretty, it's pretty special. It was really, really unusual for a kid. And then when, in 1973, uh, my first acting job professionally, I got a little role in a movie called Limbo that she was in. Uh, it was the very first movie about the wives of prisoners. Of uh, it was the first, very, very first film about about uh, the Vietnam War, actually. Uh, and my mom played a, a wife of a POW. Uh, her and Kate Jackson, and they're waiting for their husbands to come home. And I was about eight at the time, and I got a couple line role in that film, and uh, and got my Screen Actors Guild card, and that's kind of when I, kind of when I got the bug. So at this point, you're eight years old, about nine years old, whatever. You're getting into acting; that's your first big role, and you want to be now an actor for the rest of your life. Uh, so where did you go to study, and who did you study with? Well, I didn't know at eight. I didn't know at eight that I wanted to be an actor for the rest of my life. I did some commercials and after school specials and and things like that. I. Uh, I went off to college. I went to high school in Maine and got very involved in theater. In uh, uh, I went to a, a really unusual and interesting boarding school in Maine uh, that was very performing arts oriented, and and that's that's kind of what set me off on the on the path. And then when I went to college in North Carolina, I went to Duke University, did a lot of theater there. And then when I left, I moved to Washington D.C. and actually worked as a kind of as a civilian. I worked on Capitol Hill for National Public Radio, worked for NPR for three years, and. And on a dare, I went and auditioned for uh, a play at the Folger Shakespeare Company. I think it's now called the, Was the Shakespeare Theater of Washington. And I got cast in a play, and, uh, and I started doing theater around Washington, D.C. And that's when I decided, kind of at age 20, uh, that, I, that I, this is what I was going to be when I, <laughs> what I was going to be when I grew up. So I moved to New York, and I started studying. I studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse with uh, Sanford Meisner, who's sort of a legendary acting teacher. And... Uh, went to the Juilliard School in, in New York and kind of got a, a good foundation. And I moved moved out to L.A. I was cast in a pilot 
1989 uh, that brought me from New York to Los Angeles. It was a spinoff of the old show Dynasty. It was all of the all of the characters from Dynasty in high school. They were all young young kids. All of the characters from Dynasty as as high school age. Uh, it was a it was an enormous flop, but it was enough to keep me out in L.A. and uh, paid me enough money at the time to make me think, okay, maybe I'll, I'll let, I'm going to be a struggling actor. I'd rather be sitting sitting on the on the beach with a Corona in my hand uh, than uh, you know struggling in New York in the in the freezing cold. So I've been out here since. Uh, I've been in Los Angeles since about 1990, I think. I want to take a quick step backward, just because you mentioned that acting wasn't necessarily going to be what you wanted to be when you grew up. So what did Little yeah. Spencer think he was going to be as he was growing up? Little Spencer thought, first, uh, my first aspiration, I think, was I was going to be a cartoonist. Uh, I used to doodle and draw and scribble a lot. And uh, and I had like a, I had a, little car, a little cartoon that I put in the my elementary school paper uh, called Little Alfie. And, uh, and I, and I was, I wasn't very good at it, but it was, I thought it was what I wanted to do. So my, the first time anybody said, you know, when I was a little kid, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up a little boy? And I think I probably said, uh, a cartoonist. And that lasted for about 15 minutes. And then, uh, and then I think, I think I wanted to be a doctor and, uh, and then, and then a diplomat at some point. Uh, and then I saw a movie about the foreign legion. Uh, and I thought, oh, it would be fun to join the Foreign Legion. I think it was some old movie with Cary Grant, and I thought it sounded very romantic to go off to Africa and join the Foreign Legion. So the first thing was a cartoonist, and then up through the Foreign Legion, and then I, I, I think I always, in the back of my mind, and in in the depths of my heart, I think I always knew, ultimately, that I was going to be an actor. I think I think when I was in college, high school and college, even though I dabbled around in it, and I was... I think okay at it. I don't know if I was particularly very good as an actor in high school and college, but I was good enough to get cast in, in some pretty good shows. And, um, but I don't think I really said, okay, this is what I'm going to do for a living until I got out of college and I was in Washington and I moved to New York and I thought, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. The, 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 the cartooning didn't work out. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take a whack at this. And, uh, I think I'm. I think I'm finally getting the hang of it. Yeah, I think the kid's got chops. He's got some chops there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so typically on this show, we discuss some of the work that the people we are speaking with did before they get to Trek. But as you mentioned, uh, Trek was pretty early in your career, and uh, it was pretty big for you. So I want to just jump right into your Star Trek Next Generation appearance. Sure. Uh, which was on season four episode, The Drumhead, where you got to play Crewman Tarsus. So uh, let's start at the beginning of that. Can you walk us through the audition process and how you ultimately got cast for that role? I remember walking into the casting offices at Paramount. Uh, As I said before, you know, in in the beginning of our conversation, Matthew, I I was really not I I was really not a a, a fan. I wasn't not a fan. I just really wasn't that familiar with how how huge the fan base was and how huge the lore was. I didn't really grasp it, to be quite honest with you until I went to my first convention about four or five years ago. That's when I really, really got a sense of how massive this is and what, it, what an extraordinary community is. But I, I went into my audition, uh, didn't really know. I, I remember asking around uh, friends of mine. I knew Brandon Braga, who was, I think, one of the EPs on the show at the time, uh, and Ken Biller and a couple of other people associated with the show. I knew some of the principals involved, and I remember saying, you know, what's, what's a Romulan? How does a Romulan act? How does a Romulan act as opposed to a Vulcan? 
what is, and I sort of, you know, before the internet. So I had to kind of ask around and talk to friends who really knew the show and, and, and knew that world. And so I got a little sense of, uh, you know, what this guy was about. And, uh, and when I went into the audition, uh, Jonathan Frakes was in the room. I remember, uh, and I'd watched several episodes just to get a little background and to do a little homework. And I walked in and Jonathan Frakes, who I, who to this day is one of my dearest friends, uh, he directed the episode and it might've been one of his very first things that he ever directed, if not his first. Um, but you have to check me on that. I can tell you, I think it was actually his third episode. Yeah, it was his third episode directing Star Trek, but it's still fairly early on in his directing career. Fairly early on. Exactly. Uh, and he was terrific then. And in the audition, he said, you know, this is a shake, there's a Shakespearean quality to this. Uh, and I remember really feeling very attracted to the writing because, uh, it resonated with me because there was a, there was a very strong, at least to my mind, there was a really strong metaphor in the story with what was going on with crewman Tarsus and, uh, and, uh, the Gene Simmons character who was, you know, who had me up on trial. Uh, there was a sense to me that this was a metaphor about what was going on with the AIDS crisis in America at the time. Um, at least that's the way I interpreted it. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, I kind of interpreted it, you know, as, you know, let's not demonize this man because, uh, because he has tainted blood. Uh, you know, there was a sort of an otherization about, about Simon. And so that's, that's how I approached it. It was, I mean, all, all of the, all of the best episodes of Star Trek, what, you know, whether it's, whether it's TNG or Voyager or whatever, the writing has a really elemental quality and it's really, uh, it really taps into the zeitgeist of what's going on in the world at the time. And so to me, that's what, that's, that's what the writing spoke to me. And Jonathan sort of coaxed me in the audition and, and, uh, gave me some notes and adjustments and, um, I mean, I think I was 23 or 24 at the time. I mean, I was very green and the scene in the audition was the scene with Patrick Stewart when I'm, when I'm, uh, I'm in his cabin and, uh, and I sort of break down and, um, I think there was one other scene before that, but that was sort of the, the main scene. And I found out, I walked out of the room feeling good about it. And I, I think I found out an hour later as I was, you know, I, I, I got home and my phone rang and my agent said, you know, you got the, you got the job and you're going to wardrobe tomorrow. Um, so I was, I was, I was thrilled, but I, again, I will say, um, and not, not to knock it at all, but really I, at the time I really thought, well, this is just any other show. I thought it was sort of like a silly, I, I, it, it seemed like a, seemed like a silly venture to me, uh, doing this show. Um, I didn't realize how, deeply it impacted people and how much people love the show. Uh, I just thought this is the, you know, this will be fun to do this little space show. And, uh, you know, I, I found out quite differently, you know, as the years went on. And then when I went on to do Voyager, uh, 10 years after that, uh, you know, how, how much people really, really love this show, but I took it very, very seriously. Uh, Sir Patrick was just wonderful with me. It really kind of took me under his wing on the, on the show during the course of the filming. And, uh, it just could not have been sweeter. And, you know, I tried to find my way around who this guy was. And, and I remember, I remember my first day on the set and I got my call sheet and I saw on the call sheet, it said Gene Simmons. 
And I thought, wow, I'm going to get to meet the guy from Kiss. How cool is that? And I walked into the makeup trailer, and it's Gene Simmons from Spartacus and Guys and Dolls and Hamlet. And I mean, you know, I, and I was just gobsmacked when I saw her, and she was just gorgeous. And she had this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful skin and this gorgeous hair, just really, really amazing to look at. And of course, I grew up watching her movies, and she had a mouth like a sailor. She smoked and, and swore like a truck driver. And I just thought, man, this is my kind of people. So we, we had a good time, even though she was my adversary, uh, you know, and my, my, uh, uh, my, <laughs> my, my potential executioner on the show. Uh, she was just lovely to me and uh, had, a, had a really good time. And then, of course, became friends with, with, uh, with Brent Spiner, LeVar Burton, and, uh, and Jonathan and I became quite close. And it's fun to go. I've been to a couple of these conventions now and, and, uh, and I, and I, you know, and, and a lot of those folks are there and it's always fun to run into them about the, the very, very first thing that I did after I wrapped the show, which is kind of funny or not, but I, I wrapped that episode and, you know, in any actor's life, you think, well, I just did this terrific, huge guest star on, on a major show. My life is just going to skyrocket from here. And I didn't work for about a month. And I thought, Okay, well, I, I probably have to get a job. I mean, I waited tables and tended bar in New York for seven, eight years. So I went to work at a restaurant in Silver Lake here in Los Angeles, which is sort of close to downtown. And I picked a restaurant that was the most non-show busy, farthest out of town and still being in town restaurant that you could find in L.A. And my first night, I, was, I worked as a maitre d' and my first night in the restaurant uh, in this restaurant that I picked that I thought nobody in show business will even set foot in. And the very first night that I worked in walks, Jonathan Frakes, Brent Spiner, Whoopi Goldberg, LeVar, it was jazz night in the restaurant and they all played in a jazz band and they played, uh, I think Frakes played trumpet and, uh, Brent plays, plays uh, trombone and they played in the restaurant and they came in there every week. So <laughs> and they walked in and they said, crew Tarsus. So, that's fun. I can't get away from him. I, I still get recognized for Simon Tarsus more than any any other thing in my entire career, and I and I, I adore that. Yeah, I want to go back a minute to what you were talking about earlier about the character, and I really like that parallel that you drew to the AIDS epidemic, uh, and also just yeah. kind of very Shakespearean. It's, it's a really good way to look at that episode as well. Uh, and I've got to say, like, I think that Crewman Tarsus is a very complex, nuanced character which I imagine is quite a challenge for a younger actor. Uh, and it's a role that can, I think, was just a gentle nudge in the wrong way. It can either go into deep overacting, kind of get kabuki-ish, and become very melodramatic. And uh, you kept it very realistic. So how did you approach playing this type of character? Well, I appreciate that. But I have to say, when I go back, when I see the episode now in reruns, uh, or if I'm, I, I, if I'm on a plane and it's playing on a plane, or you know, if I see it late at night, as an actor, you know, you, you're always second guessing yourself and there's always that little element of, of insecurity. And I always look at that scene with Patrick and wish that I, I could go, the wish that I could go back in time and tweak some things and redo some things. I wish I could have a do over on that character. As I said, I was so green. Um, but I mean, I, I, I'd done a, I'd done a couple of things. I'd done a lot of theater, but I had, you know, I had some chops. But uh, I, I, I always look back and, and find that I sort of forced it a little bit too much, um, at, least in, at least in my mind. I wish I'd settled down. I was, I was pretty nervous, to be honest with you. I think I was nervous with, with Sir Patrick. And um, so I, I used, but I, I, 
that being said, I used those nerves to my advantage. You know, I used it in the scene. I used my inherent nervousness, you know, in the scene with Patrick and in the scene with uh, the wonderful character actor, Bruce French, uh, who's, who was uh, interrogating me in the, uh, you know, on the witness stand there. Uh, you know, I just used my natural nerves. So I think, I think it came across. Okay. I'm glad you say that it came across as natural and unforced because, uh, you know, I, my, my recollection of it, I mean, we're talking about gosh, almost 30 years ago. Uh, but my recollection of it is that I was, you know, I was, I was really, I mean, I knew I was kind of in the big league with some really heavy duty actors. I had admired Patrick Stewart for so long. He was on a, a show that I just uh, I really admired on PBS called Acting Shakespeare with a guy named John Barton. And, you know, he was a, a very renowned Shakespearean actor, Patrick Stewart. And so I just thought, man, I'm in, I'm in some deep water here. I'm with some heavy cats and I just want to, I wanted to get it right. So, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm glad I did. I think there was, I think there was a scene where, I think there was a scene where I cried and we had to go back and reshoot that scene. I was in the, in the scene with Patrick Stewart and I cried a little bit and we got a note from the producer saying, you know, he would never cry. He wouldn't betray that much emotion. So we had to go back and redo that, uh, which was a, which was a good lesson for me. Yeah. I imagine it must be very intimidating to have to do scenes, not only with Patrick Stewart, but where it's literally just you and Patrick Stewart in the room alone, as well as working with Bruce, as you mentioned, and Gene Simmons. Point being here, you have to work with some very intimidating characters and very intimidating actors. So what is it like on set yeah. when you're actually playing back and forth with these people in your roles? Well, you know, you're, um, you're 23 years old, and, you, and you, you, you get cast on this amazing, iconic show. And so I think, even though I was nervous, I think at the time, I probably wanted to act like, I belonged there. Um, you know, so I, I was, I was trying not to betray my nerves. Um, but I, I, I wanted to kind of act like I fit in and like I deserved to be there with all these heavy hitters. So, I mean, I, the, the vibe on the set was lighthearted and very collegial and fun and LeVar was great and, you know, joking around with me and, uh, you know, it was, it was a really, really great atmosphere on the set. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's, you know, you look at, you probably saw, I think a few weeks ago, uh, Marina Sirtis, uh, you know, it was her birthday and the entire cast, uh, got together on zoom to have a birthday party for her. I mean, that's, that's these guys, that's this group of actors, you know, they're a family and, and, uh, and that's, that's the family that welcomed me into the show when I was there. I mean, I was only there for a week, but, uh, but it was that, it was that kind of, you know, collegial fun, you know, welcome to the family, welcome to our show. Uh, you know, you're our guest star for the week. And they treated me uh, like a peer, which was really lovely. That's really great to hear. Now, your character is half Romulan, half human, as you mentioned. And that means you've got to wear yeah. some prosthetics. So you got to wear the ears. How did it feel to wear the ears? And it. Did it bother you at all? Not at all. No, no. It was, uh, I mean, uh, Michael Westmore, uh, the great Michael Westmore, the, the, the makeup artist who comes from the long, long lineage of, you know, extraordinary makeup artists in Hollywood. Uh, every morning I would go in and he glue a couple of ears on me and they did something with my eyebrows. They sort of tweaked my eyebrows a little bit. I think they tweezed them and kind of put them into a point a little bit. That was it. It was, uh, it was easy peasy. So, uh, it was a, it was a pretty quick makeup sitting, sitting next to Michael Dorn, who played Worf, who was in there for, you know, three or four hours every morning. 
he was the first one in and the last one out because they you know, had to glue that giant rubber head on him. So I got lucky. And then when I did uh, Voyager several years later, uh, I was a hologram. So I was just I just looked like me. So I never got the benefit of uh, of having to have all that prosthetic glued onto me. Thank goodness. So as we mentioned at the start of this episode, the drumhead was directed by Jonathan Frakes. So what was it like working with him as a director, especially since he's now at this point in time still kind of getting his bearings on being a director? Uh, he was great. I mean, he was great. He was he was very very funny. He's still one of the funniest humans I've ever known. Uh, and I think he probably sensed that I was a little that I was a little nervous and. Uh, he was just, he was just terrific with me. Um, I mean, but the first, the first question I asked him is, you know, how does it, how does a half Romulan half human act? I want to get this right. And he wanted to make sure I got it right. So, uh, he was, he was terrific, you know, said, ask me anything you want. You can ask me any questions. Gave me his phone number when we first came on the set, uh, which not a lot of directors do and said, you know, here's my, you know, here's my cell phone. And if you want to call me, if you've got any questions, he really treated me like, like a pro. He treated me like an old timer and a pro and a, and a, and a peer, uh, which was great. And, uh, that's why we have such a, we've got such a nice working relationship to this day. I think I've done five or five or six shows with him, uh, leverage and several other shows over the years. But when, when Jonathan calls and you're available, you kind of drop whatever you're doing and just go, run to be on a set with him because he runs a fun set and actors love him. Uh, my, my best experience working with directors is directors who, uh, who have been actors themselves and who genuinely love actors. And Jonathan, you know, was a wonderful actor himself, uh, had a great career as an actor before, before Star Trek. Uh, so he just, uh, uh, he loves the process. He loves everything about it. There's a real joy and a twinkle in his eye when he works and he's just delightful to be around. So, uh, I, I just, I can't wait to work with him any opportunity that I get. We check in with each other from time to time. And, uh, it's, it's really nice. He actually just texted me the other day to check and see how I was doing during the, during the quarantine. So, um, he's a, he's a, he's a good man. So when you get to work with somebody like that, it's, it just makes the days go by faster and it's just a joy to get out of bed and, you know, just want to, you just want to run to the studio and get there and get to work because everybody's, you know, having such a gas. Yeah, and on that note, I've heard that uh, on the set of Next Generation, all the actors spent a lot of time just cracking each other up. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, you know, yeah. were there a lot of bloopers? Was there a lot of things that didn't make it uh, onto the show that just can never, ever be aired? You know, I, I, I wish I could tell you, Matthew. I really don't. I don't remember that. I don't know. I don't know the facts of that. I mean, again, it's, you know, it's 30 years ago and I've done uh, 200 television shows since Star Trek. But, uh, uh, you know, if, if there are bloopers, uh, one of them was probably uh, me crying. And then having to having to go back and reshoot that scene uh, without me crying, so I don't know. It didn't make that that didn't make it into the gag reel, but I'm sure there were lots of bloopers. But it was a very very lighthearted, fun set. People people were, you know, when you're you're movie and TV sets are a long, arduous, uh, you know, they're long days. They're fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hour days, uh, and there's a lot of sitting around. And you know, the, the old the old expression is you get paid to wait. The acting you know acting is for free, and you get paid to wait. So, uh, I, I am the kind of actor. I've always been the kind of actor where, uh, I, I don't run back to my trailer, uh, and, and wait till the next scene. I love to stay on the set. I love to stay in my, you know, in my little chair with my book. And I love to just watch the action around me and, and watch what the directors are doing and the sound guys and kind of soak it in, especially that young and that early in my career, I just wanted to learn as much as possible. 
Um, and it, you know, it's, it served me well later for directing. So I got to, you know, I got to absorb a lot and watch a lot. And when you watch somebody like Jonathan directing, you know, that's, that's somebody you want to emulate. You want to emulate how he, uh, how he captains a show, how he runs a show, how he talks to his actors. So, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, so yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of lightheartedness and a lot of joking on the set. Uh, I was just, I had blinders on, man. I was just, uh, laser focused on, on doing my job and doing the best job I could. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, I am Jose Betancourt, the host of Cheese, a photography podcast. My podcast covers everything photography, not the hardware side of things, but the adventure, my adventure in photography. I also have a few guest hosts who will hop on every now and then. They both have varied experience in photography, and they know way more than I do. So I pick their brains, and things that they tell us is really remarkable. So make sure you check out cheese a photography podcast you can find it on itunes or at rageworks.net we now return to trek untold so spencer after this appearance on star trek next generation your career does pick up pretty hard and fast because you've been in again as we said and we'll say again and again so many things so from there you've been in dr quinn the crow university hospital reasonable doubts uh, another mark Harmon show jag uh, but the one i want to talk about right now is uh, when you were in Air Force One, where you got to play alongside Harrison Ford, Glenn Close, Gary Oldman. That must have been a thrill if you'd work on that movie. That was uh, that was what I consider kind of my first movie. Uh, Mark Harmon wasn't in Jag, by the way. Actually, that was uh, that was David James Elliott. But oh, uh, it was a Don Belisario show. Who and Don Belisario created uh, NCIS, so maybe that's what you're. Oh uh, yeah, there's a lot of things in your resume. Uh, it's easy to get confused. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know it's a lot. I mean, you, you mentioned University Hospital. I mean, that's a. I I, I don't even remember doing that. Um, I remember being I remember being in Vancouver, and I was in Vancouver to do that job. And while I was there, I ended up getting offered three other jobs in Vancouver that were shooting in Vancouver. There was a booming, booming time in 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 Vancouver, Canada at that at that time uh, where everything was being shot up there. So I went from I went from University Hospital to. Uh, another sci-fi show called Mantis uh, to 21 Jump Street. So there was a lot of lot of work up there in the late 80s, early 90s, and I was just kind of gobbling it up and going from gig to gig. And my then my first kind of regular 
regular gig was a, a wonderful show called Reasonable Doubts. That was with Mark Harmon and Marley Matlin. And that's kind of what kind of put me on the TV map, I suppose. Uh, that was the first kind of regular job that I had. Uh, I was recurring, but I, I did several episodes of that show. And, uh, and that kind of made me feel like a series regular. And, uh, and from that, it was just, uh, that I think the next, the next terrific job after that was, uh, a film called stars fell on Henrietta with Robert Duvall, who is, uh, probably my greatest acting idol. Uh, that's what I consider my first movie. Uh, that was directed by uh, James Keach, uh, the the actor-director James Keach, who at the time was married to Jane Seymour. Uh, and when I finished the episode of Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, uh, James Keach said, hey, I'm, I'm doing this movie with, uh, with Bobby Duvall. We're shooting it in Texas. It's 1930s Dust Bowl. Uh, there's a great little part for you in it. Are you, are you available in a couple of months? And I said, let me check my schedule. Yeah, I'm available to do, you know, to, to, to act opposite Robert Duvall. So a couple of months later, I found myself in, in Texas uh, with Robert Duvall driving down dusty Texas roads in a car with, with my acting hero. Uh, so uh, the movie didn't do much. It was, it, was, it was Robert Duvall and Aidan Quinn and Billy Bob Thornton and Francis Fisher and Brian Dennehy, the late, great Brian Dennehy, was extraordinary. It's an incredible cast. Um, and then not too long after that, uh, uh, Air Force One came along, and that's that's uh, that's kind of when I felt like I got invited to sit at the grown-up stable and uh, be with you know Glenn Close and Harrison Ford, and that was just uh, that I still pinch myself that I got that job. It's the and it's also just it it's play it plays everywhere somewhere sometime during the day, and it's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. So um, it, that was a, that was a real joy to be a part of that film. And uh, I'm, I'm really, really lucky. In fact, uh, my friend Clyde Kuzatsu, who was also on Star Trek, wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, character actor. Uh, and uh, he was recalling today on Instagram, he was talking about having done In the Line of Fire with Wolfgang Peterson. And uh, Wolfgang didn't cast his actors by audition. You went and met him. Uh, he looked at your, your demo reel, you know, your highlight reel of scenes. And then he would bring you to the set uh, or to his office and he would just sit down and meet with you. And so that was my experience. He had seen my tape and I went and met with him and uh, he said, so you want to be in this picture? And I said, you bet. And he, again, he said, uh, do you have the next five months free? And I said, you know, twist my arm. I will. Uh, I think I can make myself available to be in a, in a movie with Glenn Close and Harrison Ford. So that was a great experience. That was 1994. I think we started shooting that. And then from that, uh, just this roller coaster ride of, you know, great, great jobs, not so great jobs, uh, memorable, memorable roles, not memorable roles. You know, it's a, the actor's life is a, it's a mixed bag. And sometimes, sometimes you strike pay dirt. And uh, so really having my first big movie right out of the box with something like Air Force One, I really got lucky. And just to name a few things that our listeners might recognize that you've been in. You've been on things like The X-Files, Touched by an Angel, News Radio, Columbo, The Good Doctor, Magicians, Lethal Weapon, The Series, Grey's Anatomy, Insecure, Bosch, Satisfaction, Legend of Korra, shout out to Korra, uh, Castle, NCIS, like we mentioned, so many, many things. And you've worked with a lot of heavy hitters, like we just mentioned, Robert Duvall, Harrison Ford, Glenn Close. Uh, so work on all these different shows, has there been like one lesson that you've learned that's really stood out to you that you've held on to throughout your career? 
a lot of lessons. I'm still learning the lessons, Matthew. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm still, I'm still, you know, in the thick of it now. And, you know, in, uh, in a really good kind of sweet spot. It's funny when I, when I got into my late forties, early fifties, there was, you know, there's, there's always like little lulls and peaks and valleys. But when I got into my late forties, early fifties, I kind of hit another, you know, another level, I suppose. Um, and I guess if there's any lesson that I can say I've learned, it's to not take anything for granted. Uh, it's a really, really hard business, and it's a hard business to to uh, to stay afloat in uh, and to stay to to stay excited about being in. Um, I'm I'm I happen to be sort of a rare breed where I get excited every time I get a job, no matter what it is. When I got cast in Mad Men, I was just over the moon. Like it was my very first job. Um, I mean, the very first thing I got cast in was, I think it was 21 jump street, uh, and started, you know, in star Trek TNG, not long after. And every time I got those jobs, I was just over the moon. I thought, my God, you know, you, you go in and you see 25 guys in the waiting room waiting to read for your part. And then you get the gig and you just feel like you won the lottery. So, uh, I still feel that way. Every time I get cast in a show, I just feel like I'm just, a really, really lucky man. Um, like I said, I mean, Mad Men was seven or eight years ago now. And I remember when I got cast, I thought, gosh, they, they picked me, you know, what, what did I do deserve to, to, to get so lucky? It was the show that everybody wanted to be on. And, um, so that was, uh, you know, I, and, and like I said, jumping out of bed, running to your car, grabbing your Starbucks, going to work, and just, you know, and just having a ball and working with really, really extraordinary talented people, you know, whether it's Mad Men or Masters of Sex or uh, Law and Order or Chicago PD, uh, which I just finished a few weeks ago. I mean, I, I take each job as an opportunity to, uh, you know, serve the writer's vision and to create a new character and, uh, and have as much fun with it as I can. Sandy Meisner, my old acting teacher from the neighborhood playhouse, used to say he had a, he had a larynectomy. He had a, uh, he had his voice box removed. So he had this very gravelly way of speaking. And he would, he would, he once said to the classroom, he said, acting is fun. Don't tell anybody, you know, and it's true. It's, it's, it's really a joyous profession. So, uh, sadly, this, uh, this, uh, situation that we're in right now with COVID-19, uh, is, uh, is really, it's a, it's a very difficult time for everybody. The industry is shut down, and uh, I had just recently gotten cast in, in one of the leads in an HBO series for Adam McKay, and we were getting ready to start filming. I'm, I'm about to uh, start playing uh, Chick Hearn, uh, the, the legendary Lakers broadcaster. Uh, about, it's a show about the early Lakers in the, the 1980s Lakers. And we were supposed we were to start filming uh, this week, in fact, uh, and now we're postponed until, you know, who knows when. But uh, it's an amazing cast of actors. It's me and John C. Riley and Jason Clark, wonderful Australian actor that I did public enemies with for Michael Mann. And uh, you know, that's another example. Michael Mann. Uh, I did my very first my first film with Michael Mann was Public Enemies, and he continues to uh, to hire me and bring me back uh, for his for his films, whether it's Black Hat or Luck with Dustin Hoffman or. Uh, you know, Jay, you, you get lucky sometimes with, with directors, uh, the really, really good ones. Like I thought, you know, like I was talking about like Frakes, uh, Jay Roach, a uh, wonderful director who directed all those great comedies. Uh, 
you know, the, the, the Austin Powers comedies and, and the Meet the Parents. He now does these wonderful, wonderful political films. And I was lucky enough to get cast in a film with him, uh, with him directing several years ago called Game Change with Julianne Moore. And he's put me in everything since then, up until Bombshell last year. And um, so, uh, you know, I'm very, very fortunate. And so the long-winded answer to your question is I don't take anything for granted. Um, you know, I mean, when the Tarantino film came out last year and, and that became a monster hit, I felt like it was my first movie. Uh, and that's how I treated it. I mean, I was just, just as excited to go to the premiere uh, at the at the at the Chinese theater in Hollywood, as I was watching myself on my very first TV show that I ever got cast in, and having a bunch of friends over to my apartment when I was twenty something, ordering pizza and you know drinking beer to watch myself on my very first TV show, I got that excited about it. So uh, you have to have a you have to have a joy and a love of of what you do, and and uh, and I, I like to think that's one of my better qualities. It's a good answer, and hopefully time for video will be able to talk about a few of those roles as well that you mentioned. Before we get into Voyager, because that's the next thing I do want to discuss, there is one other show I want to talk to you about, because on this Trek Untold series, I seem to be building up this oral history for this series, and that's Murder, She Wrote. Yeah. And uh, I know they did two oh, episodes well. of Murder, She Wrote, So, and everybody's got an Angela Lansbury story. So do you have an Angela Lansbury story for us? Well, I knew Angela growing up as a kid. My mom knew her. She was a family friend. And I also grew up spending summers in Ireland. Uh, we had family friends that uh, that lived in Ireland. That uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, photographer uh, that folks listening in should look up uh, named Bob Willoughby. He was one of the very first what they called a special photographer on on film sets. He took the behind the scenes photos on some really really iconic films. Bob and his family packed up Santa Monica and moved to Ireland. And so for 20 summers, uh, one month, every summer for 20 years, uh, I, I spent in Ireland. So we spent a lot of time with the Lansbury family. So I knew Angela as a kid, and she's just the warmest, loveliest, most extraordinary woman, you know, I, I had really ever met uh, and, and continues to be to this day. I think she's 91 and she's still working uh, and, and working and really great at it, too. I mean, she's just she's just indefatigable and amazing. So when I got cast on that show, that was one of the one of the shows that uh, you didn't audition for. You were just offered. Uh, and again, as a young actor, when I got the call from my agent at the time, he said, you got offered a murder. She wrote that was a little bit of a badge of honor. Um, it kind of meant you'd sort of arrived. Uh, you know, you didn't have to audition. You didn't have to jump through any hoops. She had seen my uh, audition reel. The casting director had and recommended me to Angela and brought me onto the show. And, um, you know, I mean, she was already iconic at that point, but she was just lovely. And she did something else that nobody else in this business did then at the time either, which is she paid, she paid her guest actors, uh, better, better than any other show in the business at that time. She made a point of paying her actors, just a little bit more than everybody else. Um, she just adores actors, and uh, you know, and that 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 shows in 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 the joy and the work that she has as well. So that was a treat. I think the first one of those I did was I know I did two, and I think the first one was the one with Juliana Margulies, um, who who uh, ends up becoming my girlfriend. I think on the series that was only her second job. 
she had done, I think she'd done a homicide life on the street and a law and order. So this was her third job. She'd come to LA to do a murder. She wrote. And, uh, and we became fast friends. And I remember, I remember she said, I got cast in the show called ER to play a nurse, but the character dies at the end of the pilot. And I don't really like it. And I don't, and I said, ah, you shouldn't do it. You know, medical shows are a dime. Medical shows are a dime a dozen. You'll find something else. And I'm just really glad she didn't take my terrible advice. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I did, I did, uh, I did too. I think that was the one with Juliana. And then I did another one that took place in Australia, I think. Um, and I just remember both times, they were probably a few years apart, uh, but both times were just a total joy, you know, shot on the universal back a lot, uh, where I kind of grew up as a kid. I mean, my mom shot a show called broadside, uh, in the early sixties, which was actually a spinoff of the old show, McHale's Navy. And it shot on the universal back lot. So I had like my nursery was in her dressing room on the universal back lot. So that was kind of my playground as a little kid. So. It was fun to be back there. It's always fun to go back to Universal Studios. And um, there was a, there was a, a uh, the guard gate uh, at, the, at the gate, the main gate of Universal Studios. His name was Scotty. And uh, he was there probably for 50 years. He was the guy that greeted you as you drove onto the, onto, the, onto the lot. And I remember the first time I pulled onto the lot and Scotty said, good morning, Mr. Garrett. And I, that's when I thought I made it, you know. When, when, when this, when this cat knows your name, then, you know, you've kind of, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've paid some dues and, uh, cause Scott, cause Scotty knew everybody from the biggest movie stars to the guest stars to everybody. And so when he, when he uttered my name, I just thought, okay, I guess I'm, I'm in this for the long haul now. So now let's head over to the year 2000, and this is at last we've reached your Star Trek Voyager appearance. And that was in the two-parter episode from season seven, Flesh and Blood. You were Weiss, a Starfleet hologram who's among a group of holograms that the Hrosian program for their hunts, but who evolve and go beyond their programming to become a deadly threat to the Hrosians. So in the first scene, we see you in the opening act where you and a team of other holograms emerge from a lake to just basically blast away the Hrosian hunters, uh, which is a pretty yeah. dramatic opening. So just I'd like to hear about how you guys filmed that scene, if that was on location or if that was on a set. And uh, more importantly, how gross was that water? It was super gross. I got very sick. Uh, that's probably my, my least fond memory of that job. Uh, my, my fond, fondest memory was, uh, becoming, uh, good friends with Robert Picardo, uh, and Jeff Yeager, uh, who was also in the episode with me, but I do not have fond memories of that particular scene. Uh, I was thrilled to have been asked back several years later, uh, on, you know, on a, on a new iteration of the Star Trek world, but we shot that, I think on the Warner brothers, back lot and there's a lake at warner brothers and it was i just remember being it, it being green and murky and scummy and freezing cold and we popped up and down and up and down and in and out of that water for several hours and of course you know you start your days on a tv set or a film set at you know 5 36 o'clock in the morning so that was the first thing we did so uh you know go through hair and makeup 6 30 7 o'clock it's 7 o'clock 7 15 in the morning and, you know, first thing you do is you're in this freezing cold lake. And, uh, you know, I remember, I remember thinking how cool this is going to look as I'm popping up out of the water with my laser gun. Uh, and after having done it 25 times and uh, really kind of an unpleasant experience, uh, and, then, and then going home and getting terribly ill for the next several days. 
uh, I caught a very bad cold. And um, so that sort of that sort of colored my I, I was thrilled, to, thrilled to the gig and and thrilled to be working with old friends again. Uh, but uh, that that was a, a real bummer to, to get to get so sick. So I didn't complain. But um, yeah, I think people ask me about that show. And that's the first thing I remember is uh, as, as soon as we wrapped, um, you know, we uh, I went home and you know stayed in bed for about a week. Now, this episode is filled with characters wearing prosthetics. There's all sorts of aliens who are playing various holograms here. So um, I imagine it must have just been very crazy, well, obviously not only during catering, but uh, let alone having enough makeup chairs to sit in. But yeah. uh, it, it yeah. must have been just a really kind of very busy set. How, how would you describe the set, and how would you say compared to your time working on Next Generation? Definitely chaotic, as you said. A lot of, a lot of uh, my memory of it is a lot of rubber heads walking around. Uh, and I remember, like, sitting in between shots, off outside outside the soundstage and seeing a lot of the background actors that were in full prosthetic uh you know smoking just really weird to see you know a a ferengi with a marlboro light in his hand so that that was a very surreal experience because i hadn't really been around other than working on tng and working with wharf there really weren't that many uh you know sort of alien characters uh you know around me and so on that on that episode of voyager there were a lot of them that were on the on the ship that I was a part of, and that was really cool. Uh, my friend Paul Eckstein, uh, I remember, was uh, was one of them, and um, he asked to be uh, a, a uh, we call him a rubberhead. So he asked for that, and I think he probably to this day probably still regrets it because you know, you're you're stuck in this thing for 14 hours a day. But uh, but we had a good time. We had a really fun time. Now this is also one of the very rare two-part episodes that first aired as a feature-length episode. So how did that compare in terms of shooting schedule to a, a typical episode of a show you'd work on? Uh, it was exactly the same. I mean, the hours were the same. Uh, we shot it. We shot the two episodes back to back. I think it was David Livingston was one of the directors and Ken Biller. Uh, and we shot them one right after the other. Uh, in some cases, we did a we block, we block shooted, uh, block shooted, block shot. Uh, and, uh, you know, where you shoot one episode from one uh, one show and another uh, another episode, another scene from a subsequent episode at the same time. So you use that same location. So it gets a little confusing in, in the time space continuum. But um, the hours are the same, and the hours are still they're still you know fourteen fifteen hour days. Uh, but again, and at the time actually in two thousand, I was living literally across the street from Paramount Studios. I mean, I could roll out of bed and walk across Melrose Avenue. Uh, onto the soundstage, onto stage nine. And uh, so that was really nice. So I could sleep in as late as possible, set my alarm, and give myself 10 minutes to walk across the street and onto the Paramount lot. So that was, my, that was always my dream, is to live close enough to Paramount so that I could get a series on, at Paramount and just walk to work. Uh, as it turns out, that was the only job in the 15 years that I lived in that house uh, that I did at Paramount. Everything else was it was either in Vancouver or New York or Toronto or someplace else. That was the only job I did at Paramount in those in those years, oddly enough. Now I work there all the time, but just not when I lived across the street. Well, I hope back then you were able to at least like sneak into some studios backstage and get yourself some free lunch or something every now and then. Oh, all the time. I'm an actor, remember. I mean, with that's we live for free lunch. <laughs> so most of your scenes are on board the holograms vessel. Uh, where you were playing alongside Robert Ricardo, as we mentioned, as the EMH. 
and uh, Eden, who was played by Jeff Yeager. So tell us about working with those yeah. guys. Great guys. I knew Jeff a little bit. I knew his I knew his career from from V and uh, and and a lot of other work. Uh, we became very fast friends, and and are to this day. Jeff is. Uh, I remember when we met, and he. Uh, I went up to his house to visit he and his wife, and he uh, he's an extraordinary uh, model maker. Uh, I don't know if you know something this about him, but he is an he's an incredible maker of uh, of uh, monster models like Frankenstein and Dracula, and he's a sculptor. He sculpts these things out of clay, and he's just an exquisite sculptor. Uh, his brother is also uh, a great makeup artist and uh, and makes uh, makes makes creatures for film and television. And uh, so that was that was just great getting to be friends with him and and you know and seeing his world. Uh, we did and we did we've done a couple of uh, conventions together as well. Um, but I remember just instantly liking Jeff, instantly having a gas with him, and I remember he wore this very unusual earring that sort of like it was a clamp on his ear that was sort of a chain around his neck, this really strange device that he had. He had this kind of crazy getup that he was wearing. And I was just like in a, in a polyester uh, jumpsuit. So uh, I remember being a little envious that uh, my, on my second gig on Star Trek, I, I was, I was still in a, I was still in a crew jumpsuit, just a different kind. I remember I stole my badge. I, I kept my little, uh, uh, I kept my little Star Trek badge. I, I ripped ripped the Velcro off it and took it took it home as a souvenir. I still have my ears from Next Generation too, but Jeff was a terrific guy and uh, uh, and 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 being being around Bob Picardo, who is one of the most talented people I've ever known. So uh, uh, that was that was the best thing that came out of that was uh, the friendships with those two guys. Now, just one last thing on the note of Star Trek, and this is for both series. Uh, we're going to ignore any canonical history. So, anybody who wants to nitpick about that, let's forget about that for a second. What do you think happened to the characters you played ultimately after the episodes that you were in happened? So what do you think happened to the life of Simon Tarses and the hologram Weiss after those episodes were done? You know what? I, to be honest with you, I really can't tell you what happened to, to Weiss. I have no idea what, what would have happened to Weiss because after, after I wrapped that show, I was so sick and I just wanted to put that in my rearview mirror. So I really don't know. I, I'd like to think that he went on to have a, a long and wonderful and prosperous career as a, as a hologram. Uh, and I'd like to think that Simon Tarsus, I know books have been written about the character or he's appeared in several novelizations, uh, which I haven't read actually, I probably should, but I'd like to think that Herman Tarsus, uh, went on to, uh, to, uh, achieve higher ranks, uh, you know, in, uh, in Starfleet and, uh, the, you know, that his, his record was, his record was expunged, and uh, and he got to uh, live long and prosper as a as a captain or an admiral somewhere. They didn't get stuck in the bowels of the ship, you know. After his trial, that he went on and uh, you know and had a rocking career uh, in uh, in space. All right, so Spencer, this is a few of the roles I wanted to talk to you about. And again, it's only a few because if we talked about everything, we'd be here till next week. And I know you got things to do. I did want to go back for I, a second. What, what have I got? I, what do I got to do? I'm 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 uh, I'm on lockdown, so. I'm 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 at your service, but I'd lo- I'd love to talk about a couple other things. Sure. Oh, in that case, we're just going to go piece by piece your entire resume. Uh, but no, it's uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and stay focused here. Um, so I do want to talk about a movie you mentioned earlier, which was Public Enemies, 2009, directed yeah. by Michael Mann, which had Christian yeah. Bale and Johnny Depp in it, among other folks in a very strong cast. And I've heard another interview with you where you said this was a very important role for you. 
So can you talk about that movie and why it was such an important movie to do? Uh, it was important for me because for a long time I'd been sort of typecast as a certain, uh, in a certain role. Uh, I'd been playing a lot of lawyers and, uh, I, well, I, for lack of a better term, I used to call them pricks in suits. I played a lot of lawyers and, uh, you know, congressmen and senators and a, a lot of the kind of the same type of character. Uh, not a lot of, not a lot of variation for, for it seemed for a while, all I got cast was, you know, was, was defense attorneys. Um, and Michael Mann was a director that I very much had always wanted to work with ever since Thief and Heat and uh, one of my favorite directors. And so when I went in for the audition, um, the casting director, a very famous casting director named Bonnie Timmerman, said, uh, uh, you know, they, they brought me in for this particular role of this gangster, Tommy Carroll. And, and right before we went in, I said, Bonnie, I said, can I read for, you know, FBI agent number two, or, uh, you know, one, one of the, one of the lawyers or one of the FBI agents, because that was really, that was what I knew to be my comfort zone at the time. And Bonnie said, Spencer, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I know your work and I know you tend to play a lot of the same guys. You've been stuck on this hamster wheel of guys in suits. I want to see you do something more. I think you can do more and I want to see what you can do with this character. So why don't you come back tomorrow and, you know, she said, I don't want you to do the same old thing. I want you to expand your horizons and spread your wings a little bit and start being a character actor. And I said, okay. And I came back the next day and, uh, and I, and I read for the, I read for the role and, uh, Michael Mann was there and, and offered me the role and it turned into not only just one of the great experiences of my life, it changed my life. It changed my career trajectory because I think a lot of other casting directors saw that I was able to do more than just that one color. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a different, it was a different kind of character that I'd been playing for years. And a lot of people noticed that and they took notice of it and, um, you know, and offered me different kinds of parts. So I, I credit Bonnie Timmerman with kind of changing the arc of my life and, and also Michael Mann, because, uh, he just keeps bringing me back. We did a series called luck with Dustin Hoffman and Dennis Farina and Joan Allen and Nick Nolte, uh, on HBO. And, uh, and then, a couple of years after that, we did a film called Black Hat with Chris Hemsworth and Viola Davis. We shot that in uh, uh, in um, Jakarta and Kuala Lumpur. We were in Malaysia. Uh, so, you know, I, and Michael Mann is a, is a director that I would follow to the ends of the earth to work with again. So that's that's how that movie, Public Enemies, really changed my life. And, and uh, I'm, I'm, I will be forever grateful to him for that because Bonnie saw me saw something in me that I didn't see in myself at the time. So that was, that's, 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 uh, that's something that I will look back on with great pride because, uh, I went back and I, and I, and I auditioned for that role and gave it all I got. And then when Michael Mann walked into the room, he was watching me outside from a camera and he walked in and he said, that's what I wanted to see. So that was very nice. And so Spencer, something else I got to ask about, cause, uh, you know, Andrea, who is our, one of our co-hosts on Trek Back Tuesday on Nerd News Today and in all of our videos, she's a big Supernatural fan, and you got to work on A Very Supernatural Christmas with Jared yeah. Padalecki and Jensen Ackles. So tell us about working on that show. Uh, well, the executive producer of the show is uh, Robert Singer. Uh, he's been the EP of that show for all 37 years that that thing's been on the air. Uh, he, was the, he was the executive producer of Reasonable Doubts, uh, the show we talked about earlier. Thing I did with Mark Harmon, one of my first shows. So I went into audition 
for him and, and he knew me and I knew him. And uh, I just loved that character. It was just such a delicious character. He was sort of like an evil Bing Crosby with the pipe and the sweater and all that. And uh, so I was, I was thrilled to get the job. And again, you go and you audition on a Tuesday and you're on a plane on Thursday and in Vancouver at a fitting on Friday and you're shooting on Monday. And, and uh, we were up there, it was freezing cold. Uh, wonderful, wonderful actress named Marilyn Gann that played my wife. And I didn't know the guys before either of them. I'd never met uh, Jared or Jensen. And I remember uh, vividly the scene where I get impaled with the Christmas tree and the Christmas tree goes through my body and they, uh, they designed this thing where the, the branches of the tree uh, are sticking out of my stomach. And they, they had this thing where the tree was on a, on a, on a wooden plate and it was strapped around my chest going through my shirt and I had all the blood around it. And I had to stay like that for 16 hours. Like we shot that scene with my death scene uh, in one day. And I had this tree sticking out of my chest and I couldn't really take it off. I couldn't, I couldn't go back to my trailer and, you know, unstrap it and take a nap. I was always walking around for 16 hours with a tree sticking out of my chest. And that's when I just thought, man, this is a weird business. What a, what a, what a, what a strange life this is, but I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. That was a lot of fun. And those guys were great. And it's, and again, it's a, you know, again, I got to be part of uh, an iconic episode. I mean, people just loved that episode of the show. And uh, I had not seen the show, didn't know about it. Um, and I'm sure glad I did it. You know, it's a great, great character, delicious, fun, evil, you know, wicked character to play. Just a lot of fun. I had a, and we had, a, we had a good time with those two guys, too. So Marilyn and I. So people still come up to me. Fans come up to me and say, peanut brittle. So jumping way ahead to more recent times, 2019 was a very big year for you with some very standout roles. And uh, one of them I want to talk about first is when you were Alan Kincaid in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You got to work directly with Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, and of course being directed by Quentin Tarantino. So what is it like to be working with Quentin Tarantino and to literally just be inches away from Brad Pitt and Leo? Well, uh, to be inches away from them, I mean, I fortunately I knew, I knew both of those guys. I, I mean, we've all been knocking around this town for a long time and uh, you know, they're, they're, they're two of the best we've ever had. Uh, and it's funny when I walked onto the set, I hadn't seen Brad or Leo in a long time. And I walked onto the set uh, on that Western town. And I sat down in my chair and Brad said, I, I, I know I've seen you in a million things. Have we ever worked together before? And I said, you probably don't remember this, Brad, but I said, you and I did the last three episodes of the show Dallas together. Um, and when he was like 19 or 20, he was on Dallas and I had done a, a couple of guest spots on, on Dallas in, uh, in the late eighties, one of my, one of my earliest jobs. And so, uh, we never, we didn't cross paths on that, but it's kind of funny that one of our, both of our first jobs were, uh, were on Dallas. So, um, he, he's, he's just lovely. I mean, that was a fun, fun day. That entire scene, by the way, we shot that whole thing in probably about, probably about three hours or less. Uh, it was 117 degrees in Silmar, California, in this western town at the Melody Ranch, blazing hot, and uh, and I was just trying to think Arctic, cool, snowy thoughts as I was sitting there talking to those two guys, uh, and they were just you know, you know, you walk onto the set and you go, you look, I mean, even though they're they're just regular dudes, you're sitting across them and you go, wow, these are the two of the biggest movie stars in the world. And I get to be in a scene with him. How cool is that? And um, uh, Quentin was fabulous. Uh, he just, 
let me do several takes. He, he, you know, you don't veer from his script. It's like, you know, his writing is his writing. And we did several takes of his, uh, of his script, several scenes. We did the close up on me and a close up on the guys. And then he let me do, uh, he said, why don't you just make up your own thing? Uh, he said, the scene needs an ending. It needs a button. And so that I came up with that last line. I said, why don't you join us next week on the set of the real McCoy? Or no, I said, I was on, uh, on the set of the Dick Van Dyke show. Um, and that, so the little tagline was, uh, I just made that up on the spot and they kept it in the film. So that was pretty neat. And so another role again, that same year was in bombshell where you played Sean Hannity. And I got to say, just talking to you yeah. this whole time, it's like, I can totally hear it in your voice. Naturally. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> what is it like for you playing a real life person, uh, especially in this case, someone like Sean Hannity. Uh, and also I just wanted to ask you what it's like to work with Shirley's there on. Well, uh, I've played a lot of real life guys, oddly enough. Um, I mean, you know, all in the last several years, too. I remember, like the first, the first real life guy I remember playing. I played Tom Delay in a movie called Casino Jack, uh, the the congressman Tom Delay, and I played uh, I played Bob Woodward in uh, Jason Reitman's film The Front Runner with Hugh Jackman a couple of years ago. I played uh, G- Eugene McCarthy, uh, the, the the villainous Eugene McCarthy on the show called Timeless. I seem to get cast as these real life guys. I mean, Chick Hearn, the HBO show coming up. It's kind of fun because you get to, you know, do a lot of research and, and figure out how they walk and talk and sound. Um, Hannity is somebody I can't say that I'm particularly a fan of. Um, but, you know, you can't you can't go in with any judgment. I mean, you have to go in and play him as him. So um, I find him a little bit of a cartoon character to begin with. So, uh, you know, just the way he looks and sounds and his hair and all that. And, and they, they nailed that to a T, uh, Annie Morgan, who did the hair and makeup, who won the Oscar for it. She did, uh, she put that wig on me with that strange part that he has. And so I just tried to capture, I watched more hours of Fox TV than I ever care to remember, uh, to try to try to get his look and sound and feel. And, uh, there were many more scenes in the film that ended up in the film. Um, but, uh, ended up being in a couple of scenes in it, but it was still a, a, a treat to be with. And Charlize, uh, is just extraordinary. She's extraordinary in the movie. And I'd met her several times over the years and I'd met her on set before we started filming at the hair and makeup test. And we had a couple of rehearsals and she was just her. She looked like her. And a couple of days later, I'm on the set. And she was in full Megyn Kelly, uh, you know, makeup with the, uh, she had some, a little bit of prosthetics and contacts and the hair and the whole thing. And I walked up to Jay Roach and I started talking to Jay and there's this beautiful, tall statuesque blonde woman standing next to Jay. I hadn't seen Charlize in her Megyn Kelly makeup. And I'm talking to Jay and talking to Jay and talking to Jay. And he said, Spencer, don't you want to say hi to Charlize? And I said, Oh my God. And she was standing right next to him. That way it was Megan. Ke- I mean, she was Megan Kelly. I didn't realize that was her. So, uh, she was just unbelievable. She's just an incredible artist. So Spencer, as we come now to the end of this interview, uh, you already alluded to a little bit of some other work that you got coming up soon, but you being Spencer Garrett, you're working on probably 300 things at once besides that. So, uh, what else are you working on these days, either in the industry or just for yourself, for your own fun? Well, right now, uh, for all of you listeners that are cooped up in your houses, uh, we put out a zoom, uh, a zoom TV series, uh, that actually debuted yesterday. It's called quarantine. Uh, it's, uh, it's on YouTube right now. It's about a bunch of out of work 
uh, soap opera actors from a fictitious show called Chino Hills. And uh, I, I just grabbed a bunch of friends and I said, let's, let's put on this, uh, let's put on this show. Let's everybody's zooming. We're having zoom karaoke and zoom cocktail parties. And uh, I'm having a zoom dinner party tonight with a, a bunch of friends of mine. We have for the last two years, uh, we call ourselves the CAD, the character actors dining society. And it's me, Lawrence Fishburne, Jason Alexander, Eric McCormick, Kevin Pollack, LeVar Burton is part of it, uh, Alfred Molina. And we have dinner once a month in a restaurant here in L.A. But since we can't do that, we, we do it over Zoom. And so I came up with this idea of let's do a series where a bunch of actors, because all the actors are out of work right now, uh, are, you know, they're all, it's basically a soap opera within a soap opera. So it debuted yesterday on YouTube, and we are, we are doing it all for free. Uh, nobody's getting paid. We're doing it to raise money for the Screen Actors Guild Foundation COVID Relief Fund. And we're just having a blast. And we've raised a ton of money already in the last day. The second episode aired today. It's called Quarantine the Series. And you can find it up on, uh, on YouTube at Quarantine the Series to subscribe to it. So that's what I'm doing now. I've uh, got a great podcast out there called America 2.0 uh, with Kate Walsh and Patrick Adams from Suits and Lawrence Fishburne and Stephen Weber. Um, and uh, got a movie in the can called Blonde with, uh, that Andrew Dominic directed. Uh, great, great director, Andrew Dominic, who did Killing Them Softly with Brad Pitt and the assassination of Jesse James. Uh, it's called Blonde. It's about Marilyn Monroe, and it stars uh, Ana de Armas. Uh, the great, uh, great actress who was in Knives Out last year. So i uh, got a couple of things popping, but uh, I'm really, really excited about the Zoom series, Quarantine, because it's, it's to raise money for actors. And we are going to, we are dropping a new episode every day uh, until the quarantine ends. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, we're going to put out about 30, 30 or 40 episodes. Hopefully not that many. Hopefully it'll end sooner than that. But right now we're having a blast and the actors are having a good time. And I've never met, uh, uh, there's several of the actors that I've never even met before. Uh, uh, so we are hoping to all have a big party at my house uh, when this thing is over so we can all meet each other. But we've all, we've all gotten to know each other on Zoom, and we record these episodes that are funny and poignant and stupid and dramatic. And, you know, this one is sleeping with that one. And it's a soap opera behind the scenes of a soap opera. So it's a lot of fun. So we're doing that, and I'm just promoting the uh, America 2.0 podcast we became the number one podcast in the country and uh i think we just hit uh uh we're number three in the uk australia france and ireland uh and number two in canada so pretty cool it's called america 2.0 and you can find it on uh on any podcast platform on apple podcast or stitcher spotify itunes so trying to stay busy man yeah sounds like it and of course we're gonna have links below in the description for this episode so you guys know where to find all this cool stuff Oh, fabulous. Last question here for you, Spencer. What is the best thing about being part of the Star Trek universe? Boy, the fans, the fans. It's just, it's a, it is an extraordinary sense of community. Um, I really felt that really profoundly when people came up to me at my first convention four years ago. And I, I'd been wanting to do them for years. I don't know why I didn't do them sooner. And I went to the first one in Vegas and it was the TNG 30th anniversary. And people came up to me and they said, where have you been? Why, why haven't you been here before? We've been waiting for you to be here. And I had no idea. I and mean, they were like, they were lined up and it was just lovely. And they had stories. Uh, and so many of them said that Drumhead was their favorite episode. 
I, I had no idea. So the fans are really the, 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 the engine behind uh, this, you know, this whole uh, enterprise, no pun intended, but I mean, it's, uh, it's been, it's been an extraordinary, uh, I mean, you know, and you think about all the actors, I mean, Robbie McNeil on Voyager and Kate Mulgrew, all these amazing actors. Um, I mean, it, t- it takes a village to make a TV show, but it takes really fantastic actors uh, to make these great television shows as well and great writing and great uh, and great uh, photography. But really, at the end of the day, it's the fans that 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 keep these shows afloat. Um, and, you know, to, to see to see a, a Picard show after all these years, you know, Patrick in his 70s. And it's you know, it's a it's a monster hit. So that's really heartening. And, uh, you know, I know he loves the fans and we all do. So I'm really proud to be a part of the, the Star Trek world. All right, perfect. There's a lot to cover, but there's so much to talk about. So I really do appreciate your time. And thank you so much for being part of Trek Untold today. Uh, it was a lot of fun, Matthew. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Stay safe and stay well. So that was our chat today with Spencer Garrett. And you can really hear what I mean about his ability to tell stories. I'd love to join him in one of those character actor lunches that he mentioned just to hear everything they talk about. Wouldn't you? So what actually happened to crewman Simon Tarsus after the drumhead? Well, in the Next Generation novel Infiltrator by W.R. Thompson from 1996, we learned that his career was basically over because of the revelations from the drumhead. However, other Trek books and media after that largely ignored that and went on to give Tarsus a much brighter future. In the Star Trek Starship Creator video game, his backstory said he received a six-month suspension before resuming work and eventually being assigned to the Enterprise-E as a nurse. In the Deep Space Nine book Avatar from 2003, Tarsus took over as a doctor on the station while Bashir went away on a three-month mission. During that time, he repaired Lieutenant Ro Laren's spine after a brutal Jem'Hadar attack in the follow-up book Warpath. In 2008, Tarsus made his final book appearance as of the time of this recording, being assigned as chief medical officer under Captain Ezri Dax in the Star Trek Destiny novel Gods of Night. As for the hologram Weiss, canonically speaking, there's nothing new about him, but I'm sure he's sipping Arachnogeno on that lovely Y-class planet as we speak. So thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And if you can, leave a review and rating. We'd appreciate it very much. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and let us know what you think about the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. And shout out to Scott Ray for setting up this interview. If you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event or anything else, you can email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.